Philippians 1, and again we're in verses 3 through 6. The Bible says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I'm going to spend one more week on suffering. Kind of preach the message I was going to preach last week. But I think the Lord changed kind of midstream. I don't know how long I'll be. My wife challenged me again this week. She read my notes and she goes, oh, it's a short one. So, you know, when she says that, it turns out to be a longer one. Because you can't, marriage is just a constant competition. You can't let the wife win. You know, so I have to get home after this and go, nanner, 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 it wasn't that short. No, I'm just kidding. So, you know, I don't, I don't try to write long sermons or short sermons. I try to preach what God's given me. Sometimes it takes an hour and 10 minutes. Sometimes it takes 35 minutes. But I want to talk about suffering again this morning. Philippians 1, 3 through 6. We live in a world of suffering, don't we? But unless it's touching us, we're kind of out of reach of most of the suffering of the world. I mean, how much do we really think about the suffering of this world? We don't. We're Americans. We're comfortable. And unless we are suffering, we don't think much about it. We don't, we don't think about what's going on right now in Islamic nations, where people are persecuted for the gospel's sake, where people are beaten. Women are abused. Children are abused. Some of them are married off as children to grown men. We don't think about the sufferings in Africa or India or other places where people are starving and violence breaks out. We don't think about that much on a day-to-day basis. We're pretty out of touch. But we live in a world of suffering. Millions today are without access to clean water, adequate nutrition, or the safety of shelter. Many go weeks without a bath or clean clothes. Many walk for miles and stand for hours in line to get a small bit of food. We don't don't think about that when we run to the grocery store and fill up a cart, do we? We waste more food in a year than some nations consume in a year. Illnesses that you and I get over quickly are deadly in some parts of the world where medical help is scarce and primitive. Death is so near to so many people this morning. And you and I are relatively unaware because it's not near to us. There's a lot of suffering in the world. Speaking of death, I've heard that somewhere around six to 7,000 people die every hour in this world. That's around 61 million people per year. Of those, 5 million are under 5 years old. And of those 61 million people who die every year, how many suppose go to heaven and see Christ? Very few in comparison. Suffering is part of the human existence. When Adam chose to disobey, he chose death and suffering for all of us. He was our federal head. He was our representative before God. He chose on our behalf suffering. People like to blame God for the suffering of the world. Have you ever heard that from an atheist or a non-Christian? If God's so good, why is there so much suffering? As if God's responsible for the suffering. As if he caused the suffering. No, no, we, we caused it. We're responsible. We, through Adam, And not just through Adam, by the way. That's a cop-out. Most of the suffering in the world today is not because of Adam. I mean, indirectly it is, but it's because of the direct sins of men who are here today. We cause suffering by our sin, by our continued rebellion against God. The rebellion that started in Eden has not finished. It's still going on. We saw that yesterday in the abortion clinic, didn't we? So people say that God is either 
If he's all-powerful, he must be a monster because he allows suffering to go on. Or they say he's not all-powerful and therefore he's not able to help anybody. He's not really God. Neither of these are true. The Bible reveals that God is in fact all-powerful and yet he allows a world of suffering and he's not a monster. He's not a tyrant. Again, God did not cause the suffering of our world. We did. We did. And by the way, he allowed himself to be abused by his creation to bring about an end to suffering in this world. When he didn't do it in the first place. Before going on, let's establish one truth about this, his atheist accuser. They blame God for suffering, but it was our disobedience that brought that suffering. It's their disobedience. The atheist, the one who's accusing God of being a monster, in his sin and rebellion is responsible for sin and suffering. Well, he's blaming a holy God for it. Since much of the suffering in the world is a result of sin, we perpetuate suffering by going on in our sin. In fact, most of the suffering in the world is brought on by the sins of others. Think about that. The starving masses today are victims, often of selfish and wicked governments, who rob and starve their people. That's sin. That's sin. People who are in slavery today, human trafficking victims, their suffering is because of somebody's sin. What about America? What about the suffering? Going, there's suffering here. You, know, you do know there's suffering here, right? Drive down the street. And you'll see suffering. Much of that is brought on by alcohol, drugs, rebellion to God. We murder our own children in our nation. We wonder, why doesn't God bless us? Because we're sinners. We perpetuate the suffering by our sin. You could say that most of the suffering in the world today is a direct result of someone's sin. Understand that? They're blaming God for suffering brought on by sin. It's ignorance. This is the case of the villain blaming the good guy. God allows suffering in the world, but he will one day bring justice. He will. Understand this. God will one day right every wrong that man has committed. God will one, time, will one day bring justice to every injustice in this world. That day is coming. So you say, why does he allow suffering if he's so good? Because he's going to bring justice in his time, in his way. And by the way, if God were to reach down and end our suffering today, he wouldn't be a good God because we're still in our sins. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and they were evicted? What did God put in the door of the gate of the garden? He put an angel, didn't he? With a flaming sword turning every which way. Why? So that they wouldn't go and take of the tree of life and live forever in their sins. Their banishment from Eden was as much a blessing as it was a curse. Because God knew they would go on eternally in their sins if they took from the tree of life. If God reached down today and just ended human suffering, do you think they'd be grateful for it? Think they glorify and praise the name of the Lord? No. They go on in their sins. God will deal with the sin problem first because sin is the root of all suffering. Sin. That's the root. He's got to crush the root to heal the wound. Understand that. 
He will write, he will judge righteously. And if you get down to it, church, that's what the, the atheist truly hates. They don't hate that they're suffering in the world or that God allows suffering. They hate the fact that when God brings justice, he's bringing it upon their sin. That's why they hate God. Not because he's unjust, because they're sinners and his justice will destroy them. And so they hate him and they rail against him. The rest is just a cover for loving their sin. Every person who has ever lived will stand before the judge one day and be held responsible for every injustice they committed, every sin they committed, every idle word they spoke, every evil thought, and even down to the intentions of their heart, God will bring justice to the earth. Suffering is real, and it's our fault. Not God's fault. It's our fault. God has intervened to bring us salvation and to bring justice to the world. He allows suffering for a time, but he's working a bigger plan that will make everything right in the end. So people say, oh, all this suffering, where's God? On his throne, taking notes. And he will right every wrong. He will fix every injustice, including your sin, if you don't turn to him to repent. Your sin atheist is a is a injustice against the holy god against the righteousness of god against the holy law of god so when he brings justice for the starving children in africa he's also bringing justice for your sin against him be careful be careful god has intervened to bring us salvation and to bring justice to the world he allows suffering for a time but not forever and by the way, God doesn't exempt his children from suffering. He's no respecter of persons. This is important for us to understand. We, we saw last week all the things the Apostle Paul suffered, didn't we? Being beaten by the Jews, shipwreck, floating in the open ocean, in hunger, in thirst. And he was serving God. He was serving God. We could probably reach back in time, whisper in his ear and say, Brother Paul, look at that. You serve God and look at the reward. Look what he did for you. Why is he letting you suffer when you're serving him? But you know what? God's going to bring justice to Paul's sufferings. He's going to hold them accountable. It'll all make sense in the end. He'll make everything right. Remember when Stephen was being stoned to death? He was in the will of God while that was happening. The will, doing the will of God does not exempt us from suffering. I get so tired of hearing people talk about Christianity as if it's a magic pill. I've heard, I've heard people say it. I don't know why this is happening to me. I've been faithful at church. I don't know why this is happening. I, I serve in Sunday school. I don't know why this is happening. I'm so faithful. Why is God allowing this when I'm so faithful? Faithfulness doesn't exempt us from suffering. Paul suffered in the will of God. Stephen suffered in the will of God. Jesus suffered in the will of God. We are not exempt from suffering because we serve God. Amen. Suffering is the effect of the sinful world that we live in. And as long as we live in this world, sin will affect us. You know how I know that? Because when God himself lived in this world, sin affected him. He was murdered by murderers, hung upon the cross. Their sin directly affected the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not exempt from it. This is a world of sin. A number too high to count have suffered in the name of Jesus over the millennia. Some eaten by wild beasts, others set on fire, some drowned, many others tortured and killed in various forms, all in the name of Christ. 
Missionaries have traveled the globe and been eaten by cannibals, killed in shipwrecks, because they were out serving Christ. In 1912, the Moody Memorial Church in Chicago elected a new pastor. Doing the will of God. He was coming from England, set sail on the Titanic, lost his life. See, but he was on his way to pastor a church in the will of God. Yes, he was. And he suffered. And he died. He wasn't exempt. He wasn't exempt. Why would Christ allow this? We don't know. Church, I want you guys to learn something this morning. We need to be okay with not knowing the answer. We have to. There's a lot of things we don't know the answer to. A lot of things. And people get angry with God and they turn from the faith. How could God do this? I don't know. But he did. And he's good. That's all I know. Why is this happening? Sometimes you can tell. Sometimes it's obvious, right? Someone gets out of church, starts living for the world, come back later on, my, my kid's into drugs. Why is God allowed this to happen? Because you've been disobedient, that's why. Sometimes it's obvious. A girl comes in the church, I'm pregnant. How could God allow this to happen? You were sinning. Sometimes we can tell the, so our suffering is the result of our sin. But sometimes it's not so cut and dry, is it? And you sit and you listen to the story and you're like, why did that happen? And sometimes, church, all I'm going to tell you when you come to me is, I don't know. I don't know. And you're not going to know. But God knows. And God's good. I said it last week. He doesn't owe us an explanation for anything that he does. We're free to ask, and he may tell us, but he's not obligated to. When we face suffering, we need to be okay with the silence and not knowing why, but trusting that God will bring justice in his time. Nothing is purposeless, church. Nothing is purposeless in this life. Everything has meaning. You say, what's the meaning? I don't know, but God does. Well, he's not telling me, and he may not, but he knows. That's okay. I can't tell you why one missionary went and was eaten by cannibals, and one went and wasn't. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know sometimes why an infant baby dies or a child or why a spouse is lost in a young age to cancer. I don't know. I don't know. But you know what? I don't have to know. We get all caught up in weird stuff. How did sin come about? You ever think about that? I was thinking about in the shower this morning. It's a weird thing to think of in the shower. I'm washing my hair. The thought pops in my head. Where did sin come from? Like, how did sin... I mean, we know Satan fell, but... How did sin come into the heart of this angel? And we try to soothe our curious mind by saying, oh, free will. Well, free will doesn't create anything. So... Where did sin come from in Satan's heart? And I was, as, I, as I'm showering, I'm thinking to myself, you know the answer? We don't know. We don't know where sin came from. God has never explained that to us. And that's okay. We don't have to know. He doesn't have to tell us. We know that he knew it was coming from the foundation of the world. Why did he make a world where it was going to come? I don't know. Why did he put that tree in the garden? If he knew they were going to eat from it. 
I don't know. There's a lot we don't know. Why do, why do people suffer? Why are we here in wealthy America and they're over there in Mexico starving to death? Why do I have a nice clean bed last night to sleep in and some are in tents and on floors and refugee camps? Why them and not? I don't know. I don't know. I can't answer that question. But God has a purpose to everything. Everything. The, the, the hardest part of, our, of suffering is not knowing why we're suffering. I think that's why animals suffer. You ever thought about that? An animal who's sick or injured, they can't vocalize to us what they're feeling. You ever sat beside a sick dog? He doesn't know why he feels the way he does. He can't make sense of it. I can look at him and go, he's got cancer, that's why. That's how we are with God. We can't always make sense of it. But boy, that dog, he lays by you, doesn't he, as he dies from cancer slowly. He just lays by you and he just loves you. And he trusts you. He doesn't have the answers. The heart, I mean, I preach on suffering every week. I think I get a thousand amens. Listen, I, don't, I don't mind that. Keep doing that if you want to, but... Church, I want you to understand this. This is, this is the truth I want you to take away from this whole two weeks on suffering. We're not always going to know why. And that's okay. Our job is not to know why. Our job is to trust the one who does. That what he's doing is right. William Tyndale, as he was taken to the flames, leapt into the fire, I was told. He jumped into the fire. But he had so much work to do. He hadn't finished his translation yet. So we look back and say, how could God let him be killed when there was so much work to do? I don't know. But the work got done, didn't it? Elizabeth Elliot tells a story. When she was a missionary in South America before she got married, she was working on one side of the jungle and her future husband Jim was working on the other side of the jungle and he went down to this Indian village and he spent months building a village building houses building a church and she spent those months translating the Bible into a language it didn't have a written language there was one convert who spoke both the native language and Spanish that she could work with to try to reduce the language to writing. And actually, I say a few months, I think they both spent about a year in those projects. Then one day, a flood came and one hour destroyed all of the village that he had built in a year. And it all washed down the river. A few weeks later, the one person in that tribe that she could use to translate the Bible was killed. And a few days later, her hut was robbed and all of her thousands and thousands of pages of the Bible that she had translated so far were stolen and destroyed. A year's worth of work. She said thousands of hours for both of them. She said the hardest part was not knowing why. But then she said, you know what, Lord, you know these people need a Bible, so you'll take care of it. Sometimes we don't know why things happen, but God's in charge. God's in charge. Not having the answer does not mean that God is evil simply because we don't know why he does what he does. The theme last week was trusting in the dark. I repeat, God is under no obligation to tell us anything. 
Turn to Revelation chapter 6. I apologize, I guess, for the somber note of this message, but I want you guys to understand that suffering is coming. We may not know why sometimes. I brought up Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Why was such a talented preacher killed with a thriving ministry, a new marriage, and a 10-month-old daughter? Somebody asked Elizabeth that about her husband. Why would God do that? He could have just reached down and changed the hearts of the Indians so they could get saved. Why take away such a promising man of God? Elizabeth said, I don't, I don't know. Then she, 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 she told the lady, but hang on. I don't need to know. I don't need to know why God does what he does. I just trust him that he knows what he's doing. Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God, for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. These are children of God who have suffered to the point of death. They're given white robes and told to rest. Their suffering was not in vain. It would be rewarded at the right time. It would also be avenged, by the way. When they said, how long until you avenge our blood? He doesn't say, never. He said, well, just rest a little while. It's okay. You don't need to know, but it's coming. Oh, and by the way, he's telling them, rest. Rest. While others on earth are going to face what you went through. There's more suffering to come. But take your rest now. Vengeance is coming. But not yet. Not yet. God would bring justice to those who made them suffer. Go to Lamentations chapter 3. God is good even in our suffering. Lamentations 3.21. Bible says, This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, the soul, to, the, uh, to the soul that seeketh him. Those are great verses. I see them a lot of times on greeting cards. <laughs> but that's not a greeting card verse. You understand the, the context of Lamentations? Lamentations is the Lamentations of Jeremiah as he watches the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. As he watches the destruction of Solomon's temple. As he watches his people be carried away captive. As fires are burning in the holy city, he says, great is thy faithfulness. Wow, you're a great God. Wow. What a magnificent God. Lamentation means weeping. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. He said this through tears of suffering. As he watched his people be destroyed and carried away. Oh, God's been faithful to us. He's so good to us. His mercies do every morning. In other words, he's destroying us today. He'll bring us back tomorrow. He'll show his mercy again. Jeremiah's words were not peacetime words. 
Things weren't rosy for Jeremiah. But he recognized that through the pain and through the suffering and through the tears, ultimately God was good because the purpose of the captivity of the people of Israel was to purify them from their sins. What was Habakkuk said? I forget now. I, I should have written it down in my notes. In wrath, remember mercy. And then he praised the Lord. What did Ezra say? You've not punished us according to what our sins deserve. What a great God. Through suffering. Church, when you're suffering, you know what you need to say? Not why, God, am I going through this? But thank you, God, this is much less than I deserve to suffer as a sinner. Oh, by the way, even if this suffering takes me to the point of death, one glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. In other words, you're going to bring us back. You're going to reward us. You're going to comfort us. If I die as a martyr, you're going to say, here, rest a little while. Here's a white robe. Take your rest. It's over. God is good in our suffering. Always. We've got the woe is me mentality in America because we're so cushioned. We're so comfortable. We're so spoiled. We get a little inconvenience and we're like, why God, why? Jeremiah is watching the destruction of his people. And he's like, oh, you're a merciful God. Great is thy faithfulness to Israel. That's what he said. Great is thy faithfulness to Israel. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good to them that wait for him. To the soul that seeketh after him. When you go through suffering in life, read that phrase. Is the Lord your portion? Do you trust in him? Do you wait upon him? Do you hope in him? So we know that unbelievers suffer. They suffer the consequence of their own sin, as well as the effects of living in a fallen world. Why do Christians suffer, though? Why do people who have placed their hope in Christ still have to suffer? There's a couple answers for that. The first one is obvious. We live in a fallen world. Sin and suffering affects everything, including you and me. We're not exempted from it. Secondly, suffering can be a discipline. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. Verse 5. Hebrews 12, 5. The Bible says, You've forgotten the exhortation which speaketh you as of the children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint without rebuke of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. We need to understand the difference between retributive punishment and discipline. God does not punish believers for their sins. He doesn't. He does not look at Art and go, oh, Art just sinned. I'm going to show him what sin does. That's not what God does. All of the wrath of God for our sins was placed upon Christ. He took it in full measure. But God could look down at Art and go, oh, Art just sinned. I need to get him back on the right path. I need him to learn that that's not okay. That's not how a Christian acts. God's punishment is never to pay us back for our sins. He did that to Jesus already. It's always to correct us. To show us, don't do that again. When I was little, I had this weird attachment to touching hot things. My mom would smack my hand. 
I don't mean that. First of all, before you guys shake your head and judge me, I was two years old, okay? Maybe when I was 19 a little bit, but two years old. But she reached out and she smacked my hand. Or she'd get a ruler and smack my hand. I'd pull it back and I'd cry. And I'd cry. Do you think she did that because she was angry with me? No. She wanted me to learn. You don't reach out and touch that. Or you're going to get hurt. You know what I learned to stop doing eventually? Reaching out and touching that. Because I got smacked whenever I did. I learned. That's what God does with us. Some of the suffering we face in the Christian life church is punishment, not punishment, is discipline for our sins. Because we are disobedient. In that moment, what do we do? Well, he says it right there. Don't despise it. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. One time I got punished for a sin, and I knew it. It's one of those moments in life where you just get this divine revelation, and something terrible happens, and you're like, that's because of this that I was doing over here. I said, thank you, Lord. Because I wouldn't have gotten straight had this not happened. Don't despise suffering. It was to correct you. That being said, sometimes our sin will bring suffering. But it's not intended to punish us. It's intended to teach us something. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. A third thing, suffering helps us to help others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Paul says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforted us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Those who have experienced the grace of God in trouble are better equipped to help others experience that same grace in their troubles. Johnny Erickson Todd is a great example of that. A diving accident when she was 17 years old left her wheelchair bound as a quadriplegic. Every day she deals with daily pain and lack of mobility. For several decades, she and her husband have overseen ministries that serve the disabled. They have summer camps for the mentally challenged and a project that provides wheelchairs to impoverished, handicapped people. God has allowed her to use her suffering to minister to others who are suffering. So sometimes our suffering is just a result of being in a fallen world. And that should make us run, by the way, ever more closely to Christ, right? It should make us seek for that city who has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Sometimes our suffering is discipline for our sins. Don't despise that. Don't despise that. That's what Israel was going through in Lamentations. It was their sin. And what did, what did Jeremiah say? <laughs> You're so faithful. <laughs> You're so merciful. And then Ezra, at the end of the Captivity says, you've not punished us like we deserve. You've been so gracious, so kind. And sometimes your suffering is meant to help others in their suffering. You don't know what you're going through. Might lead you to minister to somebody else who needs you. Somebody less along in the faith than you. Somebody with a weaker faith than you. That you can come alongside them and you can bear the burden with them in their suffering. Don't despise that. Use it. Go to Philippians 3.10. Philippians 3.10. There's a fourth reason that Christians suffer. Philippians 3.10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Suffering brings us closer to the Lord. Christ suffered in the flesh and you tend to turn to someone who can relate to what you're going through, don't you? 
You tend to seek out somebody who can understand what you're suffering through. Christ understands. He has suffered. He has suffered. We tend to draw near to God in bad times more than good times. Say, why is there so much suffering in my life if I'm a Christian? Because God wants you to draw nearer to him. And you're probably not going to do it in the good times. We don't do it when everything's going wonderful. And the bank account is full. And the car is running right. And the house is clean. And the job is good. But we do it when the job is on the line. Or lost. Or the cancer comes. Or the car breaks down. Or there's problems in the home. We tend to draw near to God. In those times. Why am I suffering? Maybe it's to draw nearer to Christ. Maybe that's the point. Second Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. Turn there. One more. Second Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. There's a fifth reason I think Christians suffer. Suffering makes us long to be with Christ. Second Corinthians 5, 1. That I may know him. No, that's the wrong verse. I put the wrong words in my my notes. See, I have my wife to proofread, and she still didn't catch it. Amen. We'll blame it on pregnancy brain, amen? No? All right, have it now. 5-1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. You know, there's a lot of people today, I've mentioned before, in our world, our Christian American world. You know, they talk about, oh, I want Christ to come back, just not right now. I really want to see my kids grow up, and I really want to get to old age, and I really want to accomplish all of my dreams. But you know what? That wasn't the feeling of those who were being hunted down by Saul and persecuted, was it? Or those who were being burned at the stake. See, when we don't have suffering, we tend to not want to be with Christ as much. Sometimes, church, our suffering is to make us long to be with Christ. To long for that heavenly home. When we suffer, we long to be free of our suffering. We long to be free. We long to be with Christ. So I can't tell you exactly why you're suffering as a Christian, but there's five solid reasons. Look through the list and find out for yourself, why am I suffering? Is it discipline? Don't despise it. Get right. Is it to draw you nearer to God? Is it to make you long more for heaven? Is it so that you can help somebody else who's suffering? I don't know. I don't know. But there are good reasons why Christians suffer. And God is good not to erase our suffering, but to walk through it with us. When we're rich, comfortable, and happy, we tend to think less of heaven, don't we? Suffering reminds us there's a better home and that this is temporary. Christians who suffer more tend to have more heavenly priorities. Not only does God allow his children to suffer, but God the Father willed that his own son suffer. So I say that Christians aren't exempt from suffering. Jesus wasn't exempt from suffering. Jesus being part of the Trinity willed this as well, by the way. Remember, God is one. Three persons, one God. So it wasn't like there was a conversation in heaven one day where the Father had a will. He said, I want you to go save people and suffer on earth. And then Jesus had to go, well, do I agree or disagree with that? No, they have one will. When it says the Father willed to give the Son, the Son willed to be given, and the Spirit willed him to be given as well. So when the Father ordained in eternity past that the Lamb would be slain, the Lamb was like, okay, I'm on board with that. I'm on board with that. I'm okay with that. It was one will. Turn to Isaiah 53.10. Isaiah 53.10. And by the way, I called out my wife in the pulpit, so I will be suffering later on. (laughs) Pray, pray, Pray for your pastor. I am a weak and feeble man. Isaiah 53.10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Pleased 
the Lord to bruise who? Jesus. It brought God joy to bruise the son. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. It pleased the Father to crush the Son. Why am I suffering? Why is God doing this to me? Listen, he did, he did it to his own Son. He didn't exempt him from suffering. By the way, he suffered only what you and I deserve to suffer. Great is thy faithfulness, right? It brought joy to God the Father as Jesus was undergoing the miseries of the cross. Not because he's sadistic or evil, but because he was satisfied with the payment for sin. God the Father did not watch the crucifixion with tears in his eyes. Stop watching the passion of the Christ. It's not true. There was no giant teardrop from heaven. He was satisfied. He saw Jesus on the cross. And excuse me for personifying God the Father here a little bit, but he sat back in his throne and said, Ah, that's better. My law has been satisfied. My righteousness, my justice has been satisfied. He looked at the cross and said, That, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. Not because he's evil, but because he's just and he's right. God saw the travail of the soul of Christ and was satisfied. He knew that in that suffering and in that travail was the salvation of multitudes from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. That suffering brought justice and righteousness eternally. It began to take back what was lost at Eden. Turn to Acts chapter 4. We're almost done. Acts chapter 4. Maybe we're not almost done. My bad. <laughs> Poor Dale. He's, he gets shocked and loud all at the same time. Acts 4.24. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Did you catch that? Did you catch that last phrase? They gathered at Calvary to make the Son suffer, and they gathered to do that which God before had determined to be done. Everything that happened to Jesus was determined before to be done. Even on the cross, his suffering was only to the point that God had ordained. No more, no less. You and I are no different, church. Are you going through suffering? You will suffer only as much as God has ordained. I can't tell you why he's ordained it. I can't tell you what he's going to do with it. But it can't go any farther than God. God has set a line and said, this far, no farther. This far, no farther. He's in charge of everything. Remember Job? Take away what he has. But don't touch him. Okay, touch him, but don't kill him. God was in charge of everything going on with Job. And in our suffering church, he's in charge of everything that goes on. We will not suffer more than what God has ordained for us to suffer. Even Jesus at the cross, remember that? I have power to crucify you and power to release you. What do you say? You have no power at all, except you're given to you from above. In other words, you don't get to decide whether you release me or crucify me. It's already been decided. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Our God who we serve 
He's able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But if not, if he chooses not to, we're not going to compromise. We're going to stand our ground. We're going to do what's right. They went into suffering, but only as far as God would allow. And when they were in there, what happened to them? They weren't burned up. They weren't singed. There was a fourth man walking with them. But you know what? Many good Christians have been put in the fire, and there was no fourth man. And their clothes were singed, and their flesh was burned, and they died. And in both cases, God was righteous and just. Christ's suffering was not pointless, and neither is ours. Christ's suffering brought great reward, and so will ours. John Piper said, this is God's universal purpose for all Christian suffering. More contentment in God and less satisfaction in the world. That's powerful. Oswald Chambers, I've been reading a lot of Oswald Chambers this week. To choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. To choose God's will, make sure I'm reading that right. To choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses the will of God, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. We don't choose suffering. We choose God's will and say, whatever you will, will endure. It is God's will that we suffer. It was the will of the Father that the Son should suffer. God's will is not about our comfort, our happiness, our joy. This is not I dream of genie. We don't rub a lamp and he pops out and grants us wishes. He's not here for us, church. We're here for him. We exist at his pleasure. He doesn't exist at our pleasure. He's working on a larger, grander scale than we can ever imagine. And our suffering in this life is but a small dent on the surface of the plan of God. Turn again to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This will be the last one I have you turn to before we go back to our text to draw out the last principles this morning. 2 Corinthians 4, 8. Paul says, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Paul is going into the sufferings that he and others go through to bring them the gospel. Then he tells them why they have accepted the suffering. Look at verse 14. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Right? Why do we do this? Because one day he's going to raise us from the dead and he's going to end all suffering. There is suffering here and now. But there's the promise of resurrection. Christ suffered then was raised and was glorified. Then he says in verse 14 that the same spirit which raised Jesus from the dead will raise them up as well. That's a tremendous promise, church. Suffering now, resurrection later. Glorification later. What do you tell them in Revelation 6? Rest a little while. Say, I'm suffering, pastor. There's rest coming. There's rest coming. What does it mean for our present suffering? Look at verse 16. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Temporary suffering, eternal glory. Paul says we don't look, uh, we don't even look at the outward, that which is seen. Because it's temporary, it's perishing, but the unseen is eternal. What does our suffering here earn in terms of eternal weight of glory? The answer is in verse 15. 
for all things are for your sakes, that the, that the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to the glory of God. Our suffering, church, when looked at properly, is a path to the glory of God. Hallelujah. That's the greatest purpose in our suffering. Praise the, Lord. the rest are sub-purposes. Yes, you can help somebody else who's suffering. Yes, you can be disciplined. Yes, you can draw nearer to Christ. But ultimately, our suffering in this life will one day resound to the glory of God. Because he'll be surrounded at the throne by billions upon billions upon billions of people who have suffered and are now at rest who were murdered and martyred and have now been avenged and they will praise and magnify the name of the Lord. Cripples will walk and praise the Lord. The blind in this world will see and they'll praise the Lord. All that we suffer will resound to the glory of God and that's the greatest reason, church, for suffering. Why am I suffering? I can't tell you precisely, but it will one day resound to the glory of God and that's all we need to do. Amen. That's all we need to know. Amen. Our suffering, when looked at properly, is a glorious thing because it brings with it greater glory to Jesus Christ. It causes us to draw nearer to him, to trust him more fully, to talk to him more often. When our suffering ends and our rest in eternity begins, our praise will be more glorious. By the way, Christians who don't... Uh, listen, there are some Christians, I feel so bad for them, who have lived their whole lives and they never suffered for Christ. I mean, how many, how, many, how, many Ameri- how many American Christians did a lot of suffering between, let's say, World War II and 1990? I mean, it was a favorable thing to be a Christian. There wasn't a whole lot of persecution or suffering going on for those guys. Listen, they won't be able to praise Christ quite like, I don't know, the martyr. I think William Tyndale's praise would be a little bit louder than mine. He suffered more than I have. In other words, our suffering will magnify our praise of Jesus one day. The more you suffer, the more you'll praise. Too much is forgiven, loves much. The one relieved of much suffering will love and praise much as well. And when he finally brings complete righteousness and justice to mankind, we will glorify him all the more for having suffered injustice. Go back to our text, Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to land this plane, I promise. I'm going somewhere with this. That was all introduction, 57 minutes of introduction. I'm going to start the sermon now. You guys ready for it? What did Paul do while suffering? Verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Number one, he gave thanks. Paul is in prison in the midst of suffering and what does he tell this church? I had somebody just the other day, they're going through some, I don't know, they're, they're supposedly going through some suffering. I don't, I, don't, I don't think they really are, but their Facebook post is like, no one could ever understand what I'm going through. Woe is me. Paul didn't write the church and go, oh, church, you just can't understand how filthy it is in this dungeon. How hungry I am. How dirty I am. They beat me last night. You guys just don't understand. Paul writes, goes, I'm so thankful for you guys. I've been sitting here in prison just thinking, man, I'm thankful for that church. I'm thankful for their testimony. I'm thankful for their friendship. Paul, in the midst of suffering, gave thanks. He gave thanks. Every time he remembered the Philippian church, he gave thanks for them. I bet that was often, by the way. Paul wasn't dwelling on his present circumstances. He was thinking about them, and in doing so, he became thankful. You want to be thankful, even in bad times? Think about others. When you do this, it will fill your heart with thanksgiving. Pray for others when you're suffering. I'm not saying don't pray for yourself, but take some time when you're suffering and go to prayer and don't pray for yourself at all. Just pray for others. Just bear their burdens. Just give things for them. You're going to find that you're, you're not going to think about your suffering. It's going to be a light thing. Number two, verse four. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy. He served others. So Paul gave thanks in his suffering and he used his suffering to, to serve others. 
In every prayer, he made requests for them. And he said, this brought joy. He took himself out of his present trial and found joy in interceding for these Christians. Are you suffering today? Serve others. Pray for others. Bear their burdens. Intercede for others. We've forgotten the true power of prayer. We don't see prayer as a ministry anymore, do we? We don't. We're trying to revive that in this church. We're having prayer meetings. How many churches have prayer meetings? I don't know of any. Honestly, I know good churches. I don't know of any church that has weekly prayer meetings. When they come together just to pray. I want, I want, I want, I want to revive the love of prayer in our church. Because I believe it's powerful. But we've forsaken prayer as a ministry, don't we? I mean, how many of you this morning, when I said, if you can't be out with us evangelizing, you can be praying. How many of you guys thought, oh, I never thought of that before. That's a ministry. Those of you who can't be out ministering, you should have that marked on your schedule. I'm going to pray during this time. I'm going to pray while they're ministering. Spurgeon had, I believe it was two. He had a schedule for every service that he preached in. Two people stayed out and they prayed for him while he was preaching. And he said, he said if they didn't show up that night, and nobody was praying. There's no backups. He said, I felt less power in the preaching. There's a real ministry to prayer. It's powerful, church. We don't believe it does any good anymore, do we? Praying, I mean. Paul disagreed. He poured himself into prayer as if prayer actually accomplished something. Because it does. So I can't serve others. You can by prayer. That's what Paul did. In his suffering, Paul gave thanks. In his suffering, Paul served others. And then lastly, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which had begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. In his suffering, Paul held firm to the promises of God. I have more notes. That's the last of my notes. Paul held firm to the promises of God. Christian, when you suffer, notice I didn't say if you suffer, when you suffer, hold tight to the promises of God. That's a time of doubt. That's a time of deception. You've got to hold tight to those promises. That he which had begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. Sometimes when you're suffering, you don't feel like much of a Christian, do you? You ever been there? Went through a hard time and think, oh, I'm just not a very good Christian. I didn't handle this suffering very well. I, I, I didn't handle this well. I didn't handle this well. It's times like that you need to hold tight to the promise. Don't worry. Our salvation is not based on whether we feel like good Christians today or not. It's based on the promises of God. And he which began a good work will finish it. He will conform you to the image of his son. Remember that when you're suffering. God has a plan. Serve others. Give thanks. Hold tight to his promises. He's faithful who called you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. We've been thinking about suffering a lot this week. and I'm not suffering. I don't want to give you the impression that I am. I'm in a very blessed place, a very blessed time in my life. But suffering has come to me, and it will come again. There's various reasons for suffering. And while the atheist blasts you and says, where is your God? Remind us in our time of suffering, he's on his throne. He's ordered all things, and he's good. He's doing a work in us. He'll perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be thankful in our suffering. To serve others in our suffering. Not to draw inward. That's the last place we should go when we're suffering. Help us to hold fast to the promises of God. Some in our church are already suffering. 
Some will be soon. Oh God, you don't have to tell us why. Again, help us to trust in the dark. Because you know why. You know why. That's all we need to know is that you know why. And then just trust you. Because while it's dark to us, you are light. And in you is no darkness. You know where you're going. You know what you're doing. And all of our suffering one day, we will gather before your throne. It will resound to the praise and honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every tear shed, every prayer prayed, will resound to the glory of God. People who have hungered in this life will be satisfied. People who have been lame will walk. People who have been dumb will talk. People who are blind will see. I can't answer why there's suffering in the world, except that in the end, you will bring justice and you will be glorified. And I'm satisfied with that. Help us as a church to find our satisfaction in you. If we find it in the world, when suffering comes, we'll be disappointed. Help us be fully satisfied in Christ. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness to us, your grace, and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.